0: Work our way through uh, books or letters of, uh, of the Bible, uh, looking at each verse, not necessarily uh, squeezing each verse for all of it, uh, as much as I might like to. I don't think we would have many people here all the time, so, uh, but uh, we are making sure that we are not skipping uh, what God would say to us, allowing God to speak as he would, rather than us just asking questions of him uh, and, uh, and, and directing that conversation we are in the middle of the study of, uh, of Hebrews and began uh, last fall. Our, our passage this morning that we'll be looking at uh, begins in, in Hebrews chapter 5. We'll be looking at the last few verses, beginning in verse 11, and then moving over into chapter 6, looking at the first three. Um, for those of you who are, you know, relatively new or not Bible students, the, the Word is inspired. Um, I often think that whoever put the numbers together was drinking, so um, because they just don't necessarily correspond into normal units. Uh, and so we see that this, uh, this passage uh, at the end of chapter 5, moving into uh, chapter 6, is one, one part of the message that the writer was giving to us. Uh, let's, uh, let's look to God's Word now. Hebrews 5.11. those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings, elementary doctrine of Christ, and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. The word of our God. Let's pray. Holy God, as we, we come, we, we come to worship you. We come to praise you. Uh, we come to seek you and your grace through, uh, and your work through our prayer. Uh, and now we honor you as we give our ear and our mind, attention, and even our hearts to the word that you have recorded and to the Spirit who continues to speak, applying this word to us. I pray that you would be at work within each of us, that we would hear these words, and we would be shaped, encouraged, even corrected to whatever measure you deem necessary till all of us grow and reach full maturity in Christ, to the honor and the glory of your name, and the joy that is ours as we walk with you. To you be all praise, even now, as we listen for you to speak. We pray this through Christ, who is the Word incarnated. Amen. It's been said that there are only four basic stages in life. First is childhood, which obviously would include infancy and, and toddlerhood, but there is childhood. Uh, there is youth. There is young adulthood. And then finally, there is, my, you're looking well today. Now, each of these stages has its benefits, and each of them has its challenges. There's something great about every one of them. Some of you, uh, as I'm sure, went right immediately to figure out where am I in this stage. Um, And some of you are very firmly in one area or another, but there's no set lines necessarily. And so there's a lot of us who are moving between these stages and maybe not finding ourselves set or, or fitting exactly into any of them. I'm not quite sure as to where I fit in this category either. Uh, Carolyn and I entered into empty nest stage full-time a couple of years ago. Uh, We practiced for a few years while our daughter was in in college and grad school, Uh, but then she graduated from both, uh, got a job, began teaching, and even got off our insurance. So uh, that made us truly uh, full-time empty nesters. And as many of you know, we became grandparents in August. We have another granddaughter that is due within the the next uh, few weeks. And so we wonder, I wonder, where where exactly do we fit in these life stages? And thinking about it this week, I then also began thinking about all the life stages that we've come through. And I've got to confess that it made me miss them. I began thinking back to what we don't have anymore. And I have to admit, I miss going to the ball games and to the track meets and to the school programs. And uh, I, I miss uh, the, uh, going to the, the Cub Scout events and some of the uh, other school events. Uh, I, I miss a lot of those things that are from our past and it made me think about it. But even I thought about that and, and really uh, miss those days when I, I knew I definitely fit into the young adulthood stage, and as much as I would give, if time travel was possible, to go back and just to, to visit any one of those stages, had we not moved on to the stage where we are now, had our children not moved through their phases, it would have been incredibly sad. You see, we, we recognize, not just as those who are believers, but everyone seems to recognize and in his agreement, there is something sad, even tragic, about arrested developments. Whether that is an arrested development physically, somebody who just is not able, their body doesn't grow to, to full maturity, into full functioning. Or whether that is someone who is uh, is stunted uh, emotionally. Or somebody who is stunted intellectually and just never is able to have their mind develop into full adulthood. While many of those who struggle with these things are are wonderful, wonderful people and have great attributes of their own and, and bring joy wherever they are. Nevertheless, we just recognize it's not the way that it's supposed to be. And it is sad and it is sometimes tragic. But there is a kind of arrested development that the world doesn't think about at all. And the church doesn't think about enough, and that is an arrested spiritual development. And it is arrested spiritual development that the writer of the Hebrews turns his attention to now, as he's writing this to us. He's just explained some of the great truths of the Christian faith: the superiority of Christ, the superiority of Christ over, uh, over over Moses, the superiority of Christ over as as the as the high priest. And he begins to introduce us or remind some people about uh, this great high priest Melchizedek who shows up in, in Genesis to, to Abram and, and, uh, and presents a, a distinct order of priests or those ministering for God whom the Messiah would follow in, in his pattern. And making that statement in the case that Jesus is that Messiah based on the fact that he has fulfilled. He is one who is in the order of Melchizedek who is both, it was all three, prophet, priest, and king. And then all of a sudden, he just shifts his tone. And, and he expresses these gut-punching words. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. In other words, he's he's talking about Melchizedek. That seems to be what all the scholars are recognizing. He's in thought about all the great things that were true about Melchizedek, and those which were great uh, about Melchizedek therefore are are great uh, about Jesus. And he says, "Look, there's there's a whole lot more that we that I'd like to share that we would we would like to be able to share with you." And, and he does get to it and picks up again in, in chapter seven. And some of the stuff is pretty deep. It's incredibly rich, so it's not easy to explain. But it's not the deficiency of the one who's writing and the one who is teaching here. This is what really makes it hard is you've become dull of hearing. He's, he's addressing them and acknowledging that at least some, if not many, in that congregation had seemingly experienced some expression of arrested spiritual development. He goes on and he makes these statements as he picks up and follows up on that point. For though by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Clearly saying, look, you're like spiritually infants. Day to day, you're not ready to digest the solid meat. Meat is for the mature. It is the infants that their bodies aren't, they're, they're not able to, to digest that. They, they get their nutrition from, from, uh, from meat, or, or from, from the milk. An adult, though, isn't going to be able to thrive on a, a diet of milk. And, and, and so he's addressing them in a very personal and perhaps in a very hard-to-hear way, and saying, some of you need to grow up. Some of you need to mature spiritually. Now, some of what he talks about might be confusing, but it is important for us to, to consider. You know, he says, you ought to be teachers by now, uh, but you need somebody else to teach you, the, again, the, the basic truths. The word again is important, which means they've heard them. Somebody has explained them to them. Perhaps they even demonstrated some mastery of them. Maybe thinking about after a vacation Bible school or a particular Sunday school, the kids come home and you ask them, "What did you learn?" And they can belt the whole thing out verbatim. They know everything that they heard. Six months later, you ask them something about those questions. I don't know. Um, you know, maybe it was something like that. Maybe not quite as as blatant or direct. But what they had seemingly once known, they they don't seem to really uh, grasp anymore, and certainly aren't able to grasp the the nuances or the implications of what it is that they had learned. But it's interesting that he says you ought to be teachers by now, especially when I consider what James says, that not many of you ought to become teachers uh, because you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, in other words, I think that there's something he's saying, you ought to be teachers here, but he's not necessarily saying everybody in the church, you ought to be you know, out, out and, and, and teaching the Sunday school and, uh, you know, starting Bible studies throughout the community, and um, truly being teachers, uh, the Scripture does warn that those who desire, those who aspire to the position of teaching, are held to a higher standard. In other words, every word that I speak, I am potentially being judged for. And all of you are thinking, I know, if you've been here for any length of time, wow, as much as he talks, he's in trouble. Um, and that certainly is something that I, I pray about um, often. Uh, And and so those who take the position, whether they become pastors or ministers in some capacity or elders who are apt to teach, there is a standard. The scripture says this is not something that everybody ought to really aspire to, to this position. It is a unique calling, uh, and it is one that requires a a lot of grace because, frankly, none of us are really up to it. But here the writer of Hebrews is saying you ought to be teachers by now. What does he mean? Well, I think what he means is in, in one respect or another, every one of us is a teacher. We share what we know. So whether you are one who's gonna teach, whether from a pulpit or a podium or in front of a classroom or whatever whatever the venue might be, or whether you are a parent instructing your children, or whether you are a friend bringing encouragement, and direction to another friend. every one of us teaches in some way. And what he's saying here is, look, you you're not grasping, you become dull of hearing. You're not grasping the foundational truths and the implications of them enough to be teachers right now. You're, you know you' you're taking it in, but you're you're not really giving anything out because you just don't seem to have that understanding. And as a result, you're not even able to give the encouragement to one another as you want to be able to do by now. And so he's very blunt and he's very direct about the condition of the people in that church. One of the questions we should probably ask ourselves then is, what are the causes of this spiritual immaturity? Now, certainly the reality is that some probably never really understood, never really grew, had always been spiritual infants. Maybe even some were relatively new to the faith at that uh, point in time. But there are other factors as well. Peter Pan is the... Fictional character uh, created by writer J.M. Barry, who's known as the, the boy who would not grow up. That's actually the name of the novel, came out in 1911 where he was first introduced. And the Peter Pan syndrome is a term that's used to describe adults who are unwilling or feel unable to, to grow up. While Peter Pan syndrome is, as I, as I read this week, is not presently considered a, a psychopathology, in other words, it's, it's not really in the psychology books, it is being explored because more and more adults in the West, more and more Americans, mostly men, uh, are exhibiting what would be characteristic of the Peter Pan syndrome. They are either unwilling, and they've never really grown up, or there are many others who come to a point in their lives, either leading to a divorce or after a divorce or just whatever reason, that revert back into a period of immaturity, of, as if they had gone back into their teen years. And they're no longer able to function, in, in, uh, at least in a relational way, within their family as a, as a parent, as a, uh, as a husband. And, and it's not limited to men, but it just seems to be mostly in men. But it's known as the Peter Pan Syndrome, and I have no doubt that that's one of the issues that was taking place in this church here. Some of the people have just never grown up. They may have come to church always looking to be entertained. Whatever was fun, they were in. Whatever was difficult, well, just, you know, a glaze would grow over their eyes and they would go find something else if it didn't kind of liven up anytime soon. Uh, because part of the issue of youth is you don't deal with responsibility, you just deal with whatever whatever is is amusing and enjoyable at the time. And you're just not ready to handle the things that are difficult that we have to navigate in life so that we can experience the things that are enjoyable and so that others can experience the things that are enjoyable. And and so it seems likely here, uh, based on his challenge and the number of people in the church, that some of the people had just not ever really spiritually matured. They'd, they'd been there, they'd participated, they'd heard things, that just had not really sunk in, and, and now in their immaturity, uh, they were uh, feeling kind of frantic and, and, and lost. But I don't think the whole issue was people who had never grown up. And maybe this is where the message hits home to many of us. I mean, certainly it's an important question for us, those who are adults, or at least when we consider to be adults, to ask ourselves, you know, have we grown up? Have we grown up spiritually, or is there some aspect of that Peter Pan syndrome in us? But the writer of Hebrew here says something that is, is interesting in, in verse, uh, verse 11. It's easy to overlook. And he says, you have become dull of hearing. Not just you are dull of hearing, you have become dull of hearing. And in writing that, he seems to suggest that the dullness that is evident in their lives was not always their way. It's not just an issue of immaturity. They were not naturally slow. They didn't used to be slow in grasping the truths of of the faith. But now something had dulled their senses. So they weren't remembering and they weren't grasping the, the truth of God's word when it was being presented to them. And so we may ask ourselves what might have caused that dullness because only as we recognize what might have caused it in them do we get a picture that might be helpful for us to see if we might be subject to some of the same things. And at this point, it's helpful to remember that these people were in the midst of a prolonged period of experiencing persecution. They're being rejected by sometimes their own families because even though they you know, had grown up as, as, as Jews and now believed that, that Jesus is this promised Messiah, and for the family members who continued in their practice of Judaism but didn't believe, uh, that was an affront, and sometimes they would experience rejection from their own families. For a time as they were first gathering as a church and learning more and more about, uh, about this promised Messiah and, and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, overall, for the most part, the, the culture just kind of left them alone, didn't really care much about them. But a few years prior to the writing of this letter, Things had shifted, and now the Roman government put them in their sights, and they were experiencing persecution in, from the culture, from the government, everywhere they turned. Not only because of the historic dis- advisement of, of Jews, but now these are Jews who had believed in Jesus Christ, and so they're doubly experiencing persecution for two aspects of their being. Their ethnicity as Jews and their belief in, in, in Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah, so they're being rejected, they're being persecuted. And eventually that wears on people and takes a toll. It's been said that just as the microwave will make some things hard and soften some things, um, you know, you put in an egg and it gets hard. Uh, You put in, you know, a a paste and it melts into, uh, into a liquid. Same thing, but it's shaped. So it is true that persecution, hardship, and suffering softens some things and hardens other things. It seems that these people in the midst of their suffering become hardened in their heart towards spiritual things and they become soft in their backbone in standing up. And it's easy to look back historically and to say, you know, what what wimps, what weenies, But we have to ask ourselves, what is our own response in the middle of suffering? The time where I was going through uh, multiple uh, difficulties, those physical and work and other things, I had a, a wise, godly, older friend say, these seasons of life will either drive you to Jesus or drive you from Jesus. You better decide which it's going to be. for the most part, the writer of the Hebrews, while these people certainly had not necessarily run, many of the people were getting weary and were beginning to drift away. And he's he's writing to these people to reinforce what they knew. But before he moves on, he feels this need to write to them pastorally. And it's some pastoral thing that also every one of us needs to consider as well is when we are in the midst of suffering or disappointment, how do we respond? And even when that's an issue, we also sometimes need to ask ourselves the opposite side because comfort can do the same thing. Comfort can make us soft in one way, because and and, and then we become you know dull uh, at the same time because it really, you know, nothing really matters. Things are going well. Think about how you what you do when you get on the airplane. If you're anything like me, you haven't listened to the flight attendant in years. Frankly, she has absolutely nothing of interest to say to me while she's up there with the you know whatever. My thought, just get me where I'm going, you know, I don't need the show. Now, if at some point on that flight I became convinced that this plane was about to experience some potential serious uh, challenges, and she wanted to stand up then, you better believe my ear would be attentive to everything she had to say. I would want to know what that oxygen mask does, you know, who made it, everything, you know, how long is it going to last, what you're supposed to do with it. You know every emergency procedure. Why? Because I might need it. Because now it is a potentially life or death situation. And the writer of Hebrews is not saying this, but it is always understood is we live in a world that's full of trials, temptations, difficulties, hardships. Everything is life and death. The question is, how are we going to navigate this world? But because we've had it so easy, sometimes it's become comfort. We just don't pay any attention any more than we do to the flight attendant. You know, we take in a little bit if it entertains us and amuses us, if it makes us feel like, wow, you know, I learned something today. We might take that in, but we are very prone to the condition that the writer of the Hebrews is addressing here in these people. Whether because of difficulty, which hardens us to the truth, or whether because of the comfort, we have both at the same time. Both of the conditions that were likely behind these people um, becoming um, dull in their hearing, we experience them one way or another and in our circumstances they cause us either to one chuck the word or to devour it right Hebrews is writing to them and through them to allow us to to look at ourselves in them and he says look and it's not just a matter of you know bible trivia quiz or theological knowledge so that you know you look better than everybody else there's some practical consequences of becoming spiritually dull. He, he says here something that it, it seems just to be a a, a a um a continuation of his indictment in verse 13 for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. You know, it's easy to overlook in the flow of, you know, you kind of brace yourself for the kick, and by the time he gets to the unskilled in the word of righteousness it may not resonate with us. And others may read it and just say, well, I, I, you know, that's for the pastors and whoever else is going to get up and teach They're the ones that need to be skilled in, in teaching this word uh, of righteousness. But New Testament scholar Simon Kistelmacher, I think, points out something that is, is vital for us to understand. He says that the context of this says that we shouldn't look at this as the, 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 the righteousness here in, in theological terms or from a theological perspective. He's not saying, you know, you become dull in hearing, and so now, therefore, you're not able to go up on a lecture tour and explain what righteousness is in in a theological way. Now, righteousness does have absolute uh, important theological um, foundation and and implications. Um, The definition I often use, and I I think is is very important, and also kind of as a bridge to uh, what is actually in view here. Uh, But theologically speaking, righteousness is right, Faith propelling us to right action, or we can do it backwards. Right action, which is propelled by right faith. But for us to actually have righteousness means that we must be propelled by the belief of of what God has done, we're propelled into action by the gospel. Many people do good things, but it's not righteousness if they're not doing it because they're propelled by that faith. And unfortunately, as James writes in his letter, there's many people who believe right things, but they do nothing. As a friend of mine once said is, there's many people who are dead right. Unfortunately, they're mostly dead. And that's often true of us as Presbyterians because we can do some very, very heady things and then we focus so much on what do we know and what can we explain, not what do we do? Because we're, I guess we're so afraid of this whole works righteousness thing. Uh, but God has prepared for us to do work, things for us to do. They merit us nothing because Christ has merited us everything. But we're called to do things. But what the writer of Hebrews here, I believe, is doing, and I think Kistemacher is right, he's not using it from that explanation. What's the theological explanation of righteousness like I just gave? He's using righteousness as kind of shorthand, synonymous for living the right way as followers of Jesus Christ. that changes what he says here, at least in, in the way we hear it. We're unskilled in the word of righteousness. In other words, we don't know the best way to live our lives in this world when we become dull of hearing to the word of God. You see, the word of God is given to us not only that we would know who God is, but also how we are to live our lives. What we think of God shapes and directs what we do and what we do not do. It shapes the way that we live our lives. The one who is only on a milk diet, who lacks any biblical and theological foundation, is unable to then really discern between good and evil at any complex level. they have no ability because they really don't understand so instinct becomes the primary gauge and when instinct becomes the primary gauge when we determine what is good and what is evil well then whatever i want is good and whatever you want that i don't want well that's evil i mean that's pretty simple and we see that evidence in the world today when you sit there sometimes and you hear what people say and even what's presented as if it's fact and say what are these people smoking it just doesn't fit in any way, shape, or form. It just, not just that it doesn't fit into my worldview, it's never fit into any worldview anywhere in history where people are calling black, white, and white, black, night, uh, you know, it just it, it just doesn't fit. Why? Because the measuring stick is instinct, and our instinct always becomes self-absorbed, and self-absorbed always validates ourselves and demonizes those who are against us. And so there's a very practical problem here for those who are dull of hearing, those who have no understanding of the deep truths of our faith, those who should have understanding but are kind of coasting along with this whole idea. You know, better to keep your mouth shut and be thoughtful than open your mouth and prove it. In other words, they'll go to any Bible study and they may amen certain things from people that they know are usually right. but have very little to contribute because they really haven't thought about things. They want to be perceived as mature, just like many of my kids, most of my kids did at some point, you know, seven, eight years old, a daughter when she was 12, might as well have been 30, um, at least in terms of the authority she wanted to exhibit in her home. And most of the kids do that. There's this desire to be more mature, at least for people to treat us as more mature than than what we are. And that's characteristic of an immaturity that perhaps was present in this church and is being addressed. But practically speaking, they couldn't live godly lives. They couldn't live in a way that would honor God. They couldn't live in a way that was directed by God because they didn't really understand. They couldn't interpret the culture and the world that was around them, other than how it immediately affected them. They couldn't recognize that sometimes we're called to do things that are hard, maybe even painful, because the door that is open to us, if we're bent on doing what we're supposed to do, it, it is filled with things that are prickle and, and are painful. But with the promise that our Lord, who will lead us through the valley of the shadow of death, but he will ultimately lead us to the still waters. That's what it means to live as the faithful followers of Jesus Christ in this world. It means sometimes we go through the valley of the shadow of death, but ultimately we come out because this world is not in line at the present time with the way that God has laid it out. So therefore, if you follow God's track, sometimes you're going to be off track. But if you don't know... What God's track looks like, and you don't know where the world offers counterfeits, you're not going to be able to. And soon you'll find yourself off track, probably swept up in the current of the culture because it's pretty powerful. So the writer of Hebrews is not just saying, "Look, grow up. I'm tired of hanging around you who are immature." He's saying, "Look, this is not this is not really about me. This is about you." I want what's good for you. I want you to have the benefits of having a foundation and then the foundation uh, of having a maturity and an ability to know what is right so that you can do what is right and experience the presence and the fellowship with God in every step of your life. The question then is, well, then how do we do this? He addresses this at the beginning of chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and instruction about washings and laying on of hands, uh, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. It's kind of a long list, but I think that the first statement that he makes here is, is really kind of the key. Other things are, are more descriptive of what he's talking about. Let's, let's move on. Let's, let's leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation. Now at first it can be a little confusing. What does it mean? Let's, let's move on, let's let's leave these teachings. Is it like, are they in the rearview mirror, we don't need them anymore? And I think the fact that he says not laying again the foundation is the key to saying, no, That's that's not the case. Anyone, if you have a contractor who's gonna build a house that you have designed and he lays a really good foundation, you should be appreciative. If you go back two weeks later and he's laid a second foundation on top of that foundation, you should be suspicious. If you go back a week later and he's laid a foundation on top of the foundation that's on top of the foundation, you should fire him or her, whoever the contractor is. Why? Because you don't need the foundation to be laid over and over and over again. What you want is something to be built up. And it's the imagery that's being used here is, look, let's not just go over and over and over again on these basic things. The foundation has already been laid. Now, once in a while, check that foundation. Maybe even regularly check that foundation because if the foundation is cracked, the whole thing is going to come down. But you don't keep laying the foundation on these basic, basic truths. You, as you mature, should be able to say, okay, if this is true and this is true and this is true, well then this must be true, and begin to build a foundation of a philosophy of life based on the theology revealed in the scripture. And then based on that, you now have an idea of how it is that you should, uh, should react in, in, in various circumstances. Don't spend the time relaying the foundation. The whole idea of moving on. I'm trying to think of another analogy in my you know, life. And I was going back to a, a childhood when I was in the stage of childhood, trying to learn to hit a baseball. My dad and coaches would say, first just just make contact. You know, don't just swing when the ball's coming, but you know, focus enough. And if you can just get the bat on the ball, make contact. That's one of the foundational things of anybody learning to play play baseball. Uh, I suppose probably tennis, uh, other things that involve that. Just make the contact. But a little bit later, they say, look, don't just make contact, hit the ball. Well, I thought that's what making contact was. But anybody who's playing understands, no, that means making contact means that you're getting hand-eye coordination, you're getting the basics in there, so at least can hit the ball. Now, you move up, you build on that foundation to the, to the next level. And, you know, I hit my Peter principle, so I don't know what uh, advanced players would be, but you know, they do all sorts of things. Hit it there, hit it there, and, and do whatever. Uh, and they can respond. They build on that foundation. They never move on. It's not like, okay, well, now that I'm going to hit the ball, I don't need to make contact with the ball anymore. And so the writer of Hebrews is said, let's, let's, you know, let's, um, let's, let's leave the elementary doctrine. He's not saying, they don't, it doesn't matter anymore. It's the foundation for us. And he's saying, build a solid foundation. Build on that foundation. And then live within the structure of the revelation that God has given you. Not just as a basis, I know I'm saved, that's all I need. But the word of God that he's given to you so that you can really live. message that is both difficult and I was looking forward to. Or looking forward to and it became difficult the more I started looking at it. Because this is a message for any one of us at any given time. This is not me speaking to you, but this is me sharing with you what we all need to hear. And I don't know where you are. Maybe you haven't thought about where you are. But all of us need to think about it. How do we know whether we are those who are becoming dull in hearing and therefore moving back to perpetual Peter Pan wishing that the church would be Neverland? Words of a friend of mine who taught on this passage I thought were poignant in their simplicity. Speaking to every one of us, he's saying, if you think you're ripe, using the imagery of of a garden or of our vegetation, if you think you're ripe, you will rot. But if you think you're green, you will grow. May the Lord grant every one of us the greening of our hearts. We may grow maybe even deeper, more rich, more strengthened than we would ever even imagine. Father, bless us by opening our eyes to our own hearts as to where we really stand and what stage of spiritual life we may be. Help us not to fear what we may find, but to recognize that your grace that is sufficient not only for our salvation is also what is revealing to us our nature, our condition, our standing enable us, will enable us to grow. I pray that the pride that many of us have that would put the best foot forward, pretend to be a stage that we are not, would not be so pervasive within us that we would be unwilling to actually grow. Pray for those who feel stunted and afraid to trust your word, that it would do its work. For there is none that is beyond your hand. And you are working all things together, that all those who belong to you will reach full maturity in Christ. Lord, may that be evidence in us as individuals and as a church. Continue the work you've been doing. And Renew it in us today. We pray to the glory of your name and the joy that is set before us in Christ. Amen.